Hello and welcome to Amazing Tales from off and on Connecticut's beaten path. My name's Mike Allen, and every other Tuesday I bring you a fresh, fascinating story about historically significant people, places, and events from Connecticut's long and fabled past. Today on Amazing Tales, we take it for granted that when we make an order online, it'll show up in a FedEx or UPS truck in a day or two as promised. Pretty heady stuff. But 400 years ago, when European settlers first arrived, there were Native American walking paths and canoes, and that's about it. There weren't any dirt roads, mile markers, post offices, certainly no ATMs or covered wagons. So how'd they do it? How'd they build what we have today? It's an incredible story, and we have the foremost expert on the topic in Connecticut, Richard DeLuca, here to help us tell the story in a two-part special with part one starting right now. Transportation overcomes the limitation of distance. Think about that statement for a minute. If it takes too long to get somewhere, it limits your options. For example, let's say there's an incredibly rare and valuable raw material on the planet Mars. Well, in our fastest space vehicle available today, it takes nine months to get to Mars. That's a year and a half round trip. Unreasonable? Well, it depends on how much you need the raw material. But consider the fact that a hundred years ago, rocket ships didn't even exist and we wouldn't be having this conversation. When the Mayflower sailed from Europe in the 1600s, it took those pilgrims 10 weeks to get from England to Massachusetts. Well, 340 years later, back in 1996, the Concorde jet made the trip from New York to London in less than three hours. So what has transportation been like over the last 400 years? Richard DeLuca is going to help us understand all of this. Richard lives in Cheshire, Connecticut. He used to be a traffic engineer, but he also has a love for and studies history and the trends by which societies developed. He's studied those trends in Connecticut, and in the last decade, he's published his findings in two books, Post Roads and Iron Horses and Paved Roads and Public Money. These books cover Connecticut's development over 400 years, from the earliest settlers right up to the administration of Governor Tom Malloy. Richard looks at Connecticut's development from three basic perspectives. Number one, improvements in transportation technology from horses to canal barges to steam locomotives to cars and everything in between. Number two, how these modes of transportation were financed. And number three, the geographical lay of the land that Mother Nature left us for designing a series of roadways, rail beds, and shipping routes to help us grow commerce and develop. To start off, Richard has a very simple exercise for you. Take a look around the room you're in and just for the particulars, you know, we're in my office, I've got bookcases, I've got desks, I've got chair, I've got a sofa, everything, every item in this room, including the walls and the, everything that made it up, wasn't born here, it came from somewhere else. And it took several trips, more than one, certainly to get it here. To further drive home his point, the resources had to go to the manufacturer, the manufacturer had to send the product to the distributor, the distributor had to get it to a retailer, I had to get to a store to buy it, they had to deliver it here, all 
transportation. To Richard, transporting people and things is at the very core of how we developed. We physically need to move from one place to another, whether you're a hunter-gatherer, you know, 10, 15,000 years ago, or today, commuting to a nine-to-five job somewhere. And so transportation is that basic to sustaining any people, in our case, that, that live on a piece of land somewhere. He says it's something we tend to lose sight of. I look at it as it's almost invisible to us. That's the problem, because it touches everything. Didn't we learn this during the COVID lockdown? Without a working supply chain backed by transportation, everything from automobiles to toilet paper fell into short supply. What would you do if you arrived in this new country and had to build a transportation system all by yourself? Well, first of all, you'd be constrained by the topography left behind by the last ice age. For Connecticut, that means lots of ridge lines, a number of major rivers running north to south between those ridges, the long sandy shoreline along Long Island Sound, the hilly terrain in the northern corners of the state, and rich farmland in the river valleys in the center of the state. Richard says those ridge lines were a critical hurdle to overcome. Over one set of hills, down to the river, up the other set of hills, down to the river. You know, that's why the first railroads were built not across the state, but in the river valleys. Those valleys go primarily along the banks of the Connecticut, Housatonic, Farmington, and Thames rivers, which generally flow north to south. Early settlers largely deforested Connecticut. An estimated 85 to 90 percent of the trees were cut down so they would have plenty of farming land. We were, after all, an agrarian society. Farming was everything. Above all else, after all, you had to eat. The first thing the settlers did when they came to Connecticut was they found every piece of every acre of land that was farmable, that was in great condition for the types of crops that they wanted to grow. Richard says they knew exactly what they were looking for. They went right for the best. Uh, and the rocky extremities in northwestern and northeastern Connecticut, they were the last areas to be settled. You know, you could make a living there, but it was going to be harder than in uh, Windsor, you know, or, or somewhere in the valley. Hilltops were prime real estate, as they still are today. You got the best view. And in those days, with very few trees blocking your view, you could see for miles. Settlements tended to be spread all over the state, groups of families migrating to their own areas of open land to cultivate it. Their objective was survival. Build some housing, plant crops, raise livestock, just give your small community the best chance to flourish and all your settlers to stay alive. After a while, farming techniques in these communities got much better. The populations grew and their needs started to change. When you have more resources than you need, well, you want to sell them or trade them or barter them somehow uh, for something you might need. This was the very first start of trading in the new colonies, which would eventually grow into the strip malls and shopping plazas we have today. And it drove the $64 million question. How do you get the goods there, and how long will it take? Whenever you have ex excess of something, you have something somebody else may want.
but you got to get it to them. Okay, the distance thing again. The new settlers had one big advantage, though. The centuries of accumulated Native American knowledge about how to get around was staring them right in the face. Most of the Indian trails, the major ones, were exactly where our uh, major roads and railroads and interstates were uh, later on. I mean, it just makes sense. Aside from trading, the new transportation system would have to address many other needs. Once you get past the idea of basic uh, survival and you've got the food and the housing that you need, there are all other social implications. Such as getting to church and transporting children to get an education. As trading grew, you had merchants starting to congregate together in the larger market centers in the state, leaving the farmers in the more rural sections. This created a two-way trading need. Certain population of places like Hartford and New Haven and uh, New London began to deal in this very small beginning amount of trade, uh, first within the colony and, of course, later in uh, statehood, but so you have now people who are gathering in a much smaller area and living and depending for their living on somebody else getting some sort of produce or resource to them. Think back to Richard's initial exercise. Think of all the things around you right now and how they got to you. It all started in these early patterns that led to the development of cities which then relied on farmers in the suburbs to grow food for them to eat and get it to them through the new transportation system. Even at that point, there were over 100 towns in Connecticut. So just think you had to get from every town center at least to every other town center. That was basically the problem. This settlement pattern is one reason why Connecticut, believe it or not, had more roads per square mile than any other state in the new country. So how did this road network actually develop? Well, it's like the modern computer-based games you may have played where you build your own civilization. What do you need to build first? Well, the most important basic need was getting from your farmhouse to where you grew your food. Your pasture land where you raised your crops was not necessarily adjacent to your house where you lived. So you had to have a path to get from your home to your particular field. But even that basic need, essentially creating a horse-drawn wagon route, wasn't always so easy. That became a contentious issue in a lot of towns, and it was a, you know, publicly debated issue. Sometimes there were conflicts that had to be settled. You know, the other farmer didn't like you, he put up a gate. So you can imagine these paths being carved from farmhouses to fields, and that's exactly what they were, paths. Just enough for a horse to carry a wagon full of produce. When it came to figuring out, though, how to get to another part of town, like to the local grist mill or town center, things got a whole lot more complicated. More sophisticated roads were needed that could carry a much larger volume of traffic. And they were a lot longer than the neighborhood cart paths. This required tools and manpower. Remember, there were no Caterpillar or John Deere machines to clear the land, smooth the dirt, and remove boulders and tree trunks. All this had to be done by farmers with their basic tools and their beasts of burden. We'll enter the concept of statute labor. 
statute labor was a principle brought to the states from England, which was a lot like a military draft. Essentially, every able-bodied farmer had to devote a certain amount of time and equipment each year to building earthen roads. It was for the shared common good of the town. But Richard says that was only the beginning. Once you build it, you got to keep it in operation. And that becomes more expensive in the long run than the actual building. And again, farmers had to devote a certain amount of time each year to road maintenance. Yet Richard says these early highway teams often had one particular tool that helped them get through the day. So you can imagine, you know, with a road crew of local farmers and somebody always had a jug of rum, you know, sitting by the side of the road. So that's how business was done. Now, beyond the roads that the towns built to get around their own communities, they needed to start thinking about growing roads to get from one community to the next. Richard uses his own hometown of Cheshire as an example. It's a suburb of Waterbury. People in Cheshire, let's say, had always wanted to get to Waterbury. So you need a, a country road, something that's longer and usually more heavily used than a local road to a particular field or a gristmill or something. And so what is now today Connecticut Route 70 was built to service that need. There are literally dozens of such state highways all over Connecticut today. But the building and maintenance of these state highways, as important as they were to developing Connecticut, weren't always universally supported. If the people in Waterbury didn't have a particular need to get to Cheshire, they might not be as interested in keeping that road and removing every rock and rot from that road as you would be in, because you need it more. And Richard says these lopsided needs are a fundamental component at the heart of transportation, one that leads to the need for subsidies. Transportation is a system. You need to serve everybody, and they, in theory, need to go almost everywhere. There's always going to be elements of the system that get very heavily used, and then there's going to be other links in the system that... Yeah, it's nice to have, but only for this group of people and, you know, but it costs the same amount of money to build. So, you know, there's always that tension. Transportation is about a lot more than just moving goods and people. In fact, it was the only way in which people could communicate over long distances. Until the telegraph, if you wanted to get a message to someone you had to physically get there and give it to them or say it to them. You could write a letter, but it would take about the same amount of time to travel to the recipient as if you went yourself. The Telegraph's arrival in 1840 revolutionized society with its instantaneous communication capability. Today, we have white, red, and blue post office trucks delivering mail to our mailboxes. Back then, the Postal Service was a series of men riding on horseback to deliver mail, financial instruments, and legal documents between communities. But to get the mail from New York to Boston quickly, you couldn't just have some old-fashioned horse paths. You needed serious roads. And three major roads, the upper, lower, and middle post roads, were developed by the writers themselves. He was literally hacking his way to make the path uh, that eventually became 
the Post Road. These three routes went right through Connecticut, and that led to a new nickname for the state, the Pass-Through States. All three post roads were along what are now interstate highways, I-95, I-84, and I-91. Those routes meandered the best way through the topography the settlers had to work with. But delivering mail from New York to Boston 300 years ago was anything but fast. When the first post rider left from New York, headed for Boston in the, in the 17th century, the 1680s and 90s, it was a six-day trip. That means you thought twice about how to conduct your business. I try to imagine how I would think if I was the pro. I had to go to Boston, you know, and I'm in New York, and I'm saying, well, it's going to take me six days. It's got to be important to want to go there. Plus, the trip itself was a misery. Bumpy, earthen roads that routinely had deep ruts, trees falling across them, large rocks sticking up and they even got muddy in light rainstorms. Travel was not necessarily something you looked forward to in those days, you know. You didn't just go out to joyride. As primitive as those conditions were by our standards, they were good enough. People used it. They needed it. Richard tells the story of Madam Knight, a widow who had to go from Boston to New York to settle her late husband's estate. The year was 1702. She went alone, on horseback, on the lower post road along the Connecticut shoreline. She had ferry crossings to endure wherever there were rivers. Um, the whole journey, I believe, again, took her uh, well over a week. But she made it. That's, that's the important thing. Nobody said, well, that's too tough. I'll stay home. You know, they had business to do, just like we do and uh, they were separated by distance, and they had to do it. The post roads were the best we had in those days, but Richard says that doesn't mean they were a ton of fun to ride, particularly the shoreline routes. Even on the post road, you may have a great road in Greenwich and uh, Bridgeport, you know, along the shore, then you get to Stonington. Well, there's a reason it's called Stonington, and, and there are records of the General Assembly in Hartford repeatedly getting on the folks in New London. you got to fix these roads, guys. Connecticut's transportation network became part of the larger regional picture, a region defined in those days by four cities, New York, Boston, Providence, and Albany. Connecticut is just a place to get through so they can get to where they're really going, whether it's Boston or New York or, or whatever. And it's this through traffic, from being the pass-through state, that has plagued Connecticut for more than 300 years. It's our biggest problem, historically. There's more, well, there's almost as much out-of-state traffic on I-95 as there is state traffic. Moving from roads to water, this is where the last ice age had a profound effect. The glacier that defined Connecticut's topography went from the Arctic all the way south to Long Island. When it started to recede, it left a large sandbar that today we do call Long Island and, of course, the beautiful waters of Long Island Sound. Well, Long Island takes the brunt of Atlantic storms and hurricanes, that's for sure, before they reach Connecticut, and for that, Connecticut is thankful. However, Long Island also boxes in all the seaports along Connecticut's coastline. It keeps them from direct access to the Atlantic Ocean. Ports from Norwalk and Westport 
out to New Haven, Old Saybrook, Groton, New London, Mystic, and Stonington, had to sail through the Sound before getting to the high seas. They had to go all the way out past Fisher's Island, almost to Rhode Island, to get to the open ocean, whether they were going back to England or, or wherever they might want to go. And that gave the edge to the ports in New York City and Boston. Merchants close to New York City often navigated the infamous and dangerous waters of Hell's Gate in order to get access to New York's markets. Hell's Gate is where the swirling East River meets Long Island Sound and has taken down many a boats over the years. Richard says a lot of business owners along the coast made the decision to relocate. Trade relationships developed between, you know, a shipper or a, a packet company in, in New Haven, let's say, and, and New York. As they became familiar with the exchange, the guy in New Haven said, well, what am I doing here? I'll move to New York put my operation there, and then I have access, direct access. So a lot of people, a lot of business, uh, maritime business, fled Connecticut. Schooners and merchant ships sailed Long Island Sound and several of the state's major rivers conducting commerce. For a number of years, whaling vessels took part in the century-long overhunting of whales off the Massachusetts and Rhode Island coastlines. Connecticut's large rivers separated communities while flowing north to south, and that's because bridges were expensive and spring thaws often caused costly damages. So a thriving ferry boat industry developed, and at its peak, there were 29 ferry boat companies operating in Connecticut. The oldest one still operating in the United States goes across the Connecticut River between Rocky Hill and Glastonbury. It's been in operation for 370 years, dating back to 1655. In those early days, key decisions had to be made that impact us to this day. For instance, the rest of the world used the metric system. Why didn't we? Well, Richard says that the French were the keepers of all things dealing with measurement. In North America in the 1700s, the new lands were being measured in a different way. Most of the surveyors who had come up through the colonial period used this thing called a Gunther's chain, which was, again, a fixed chain of 100 links, 16 feet maybe. But anyway, the decision was made, you know, when we lay out the rest of the territory, we'll stick with what we know and forget the metric system, leave that to the French. The 16-foot Gunther's chain was also known as a rod, there are still roads in Connecticut named Two Rod Road, which are, if you do the math, 32 feet wide, twice the length of a Gunther's chain. Plus, Richard says a Gunther's chain was used to earmark where the property lines were located. If you're laying out a farm, I, the math is a lot easier with a Gunther's chain. It's got 100 links, it's so many rods, it, it, it was just what everybody was used to. And how did we end up with a mile? a distance measured by 5,280 feet. Well, in Germany, they used a measurement known as a furlong. It was 660 feet, and it was measured by the feet of soldiers taking 660 steps. At some point, somebody decided that eight furlongs would be a mile, and eight times 660 feet is 5,280 feet. Well, today we travel along and see road signs that tell us how far it is to a major destination. We've got both printed and electronic signs. Back in colonial days, there were large stone pillars 
buried deep in the ground along the side of the road with the top end of it jutting out above the land's surface. If you're on your horse, you would see a Roman numeral and the initials of the city carved into the stone, telling you where you were headed and how much longer you had to go. There are actually still a few of these stone pillars around the state if you know where to find them. For example, Richard says you can see one on Route 10 in Hamden near the parking lot of Ireland's Great Hunger Museum. So these were the earliest days in Connecticut. Dirt roads, horses, sailing ships. The roads were made possible by statute labor. Farmers required to help build and maintain the roads. But time doesn't stand still, and things changed in Connecticut. Commerce expanded, and the movement toward independence was on the rise. Richard says the statute labor system needed to change, too, to accommodate the farmers' new realities. They were off either conducting business of their own to make a livelihood, or eventually they were in the war, you know, fighting the British. So it's like, well, what are we going to do? And that's when the idea of let's tax people, we'll collect a road tax, and then we'll hire somebody to fix the road. And that's where we're going to stop for today. But Richard DeLuca will be back in part two of our mini-series on Connecticut's transportation development story with the fascinating tales that were made possible by the Industrial Revolution and the advent of such things as electric trolleys, steam and diesel locomotives, automobiles, tolls, bridges, and much more. That's it for this episode of Amazing Tales from Off and On Connecticut's Beaten Path. I want to thank my guest for this episode, Richard DeLucum, the author of two must-read books on how transportation drove development in Connecticut and the region, Post Roads and Iron Horses, and Paved Roads and Public Money. Please follow me in between episodes on either Facebook at Amazing Tales CT or Instagram, also Amazing Tales CT. I'd love to hear from you. If you liked what you heard today, spread the word with your families and friends. And I'll see you the next time here on Amazing Tales from off and on Connecticut's Beaten Path. I'm Mike Allen. Be safe and stay healthy. Stay healthy.